So the only reason I act is to impact other people, not from me and my who I am, but through the stories of the characters I play. Because I think there has to be a place in this world where people can quietly reflect or try to imagine or absorb something that happened to them a while ago or they're right in it mm. and, and not be about outcomes and not be quantifiable. Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee Potters, I'm so excited to be able to introduce you to today's guest. I'm being joined by Marta Dusseldorp, a name many of you will know because she's a star of Australian stage, film and theatre. Her television credits include Blackjack, Crownies, Janet King, Jack Irish and A Place to Call Home. She's a very awarded actress, but one of the things I've always really admired about her is the way that she uses the platform and prominence that she's got to drive change on issues that matter. Let's delve into it. Here's Marta. Marta, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time. My absolute pleasure, Holly. It's lovely to see you and talk to you again. It's, uh, you're a woman of, of many hats, and I'm excited to get to kind of your current work at the moment, but I would love to know what you grew up wanting to be. Was it always that you were going to tread boards and be in front of cameras and, and be an actress? Um, I think I was always um, a censorious person. So I had this amazing hearing ability. I heard everything. And so uh, it was impossible for me to ignore or live in the world without seeing things around a corner or in the dark or... So my world was very large as a, as a young child and I had a very, you know, like everyone, a bit of a tumultuous upbringing in the sense of I lost my brother very early on mm. uh, to leukaemia and I sent myself to boarding school as part but of yourself. That. Yes, reaction to that trauma. I was a ballet dancer from the age of four and wow. I was never went to birthday parties. I would train and Saturday... Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, all day dancing after school and then all day on the weekends. So I had a, a really great grasp of discipline. I was very fit, um, so quite mentally alert. And when I went to boarding school, that all stopped. And so I had a lot of energy to give and my mum put me into the drama club there. So I understood about story and uh, I started using my voice. And so this sort of physical discipline that I had became this vocal world and contact with an audience. So um, I guess that's how I'd sum it up. And then I actually really needed to disappear from who I was and that's what the roles in theatre gave me. So I, I felt very deeply and I always felt it was too much. And so I used my characters to pretend I didn't have <laughs> this access to vulnerability. I pretended it was my characters. And um, it's only as I've gotten older, I've realised that vulnerability is actually a superpower. It leads to compassion. So it leads to all my charity work and why I'm always thinking, but what else can I do to help other people um, and certainly never profit from that. So. Uh, that's that's a kind of sum up, yeah. Wow. So I'm interested to begin with. I mean, the the ballet and kind of all the discipline and everything like that. I, I imagine in a world that is really choose your own adventure, like acting is. It's it's the hustles on you that would have mm -hmm. served you very well in your career in terms of the dedication you would have needed to give to not only honing the craft but showing up at auditions, doing the extra mile work that was required to break into the industry. From the outside looking mm -hmm. in, it looks like a tough a tough gig, a tough life to sign up for. Was that your experience of the journey? Yes, and more than anything, I was told every day when they'd say, and what do you want to be? And that changed to, what are you going to do? How are you going to make money? You know, from being young and it's all about, you know, excitement and fairyland to this sort of hard ass. well, I'm not going to pay for you anymore. I'd say, I, I want to be an actor. And they go, oh, don't do that. Oh, you'd never do that. Why would you do that? So not only... Did I know what I want? But every person I came into contact with, people I loved and respected, who were only taking looking out for me, said, mm. whatever you do, do not do that. So, um, and that was, that was a community shun, um, really. 
there wasn't one person who said do it except for me, my heart, and my mentors. So mm. at drum school, I met June Jago, who was the original uh, Summer of the 17th Doll. Anyway, for people who know that very famous Yeah, Renata. absolutely. Played Olive. And my drama teacher at school, at boarding school, he also said to me, you are an actor and you have, you have what it takes. Nurture it and you will have this career. Then slowly my parents started coming and going, you're really good, but more to the point, people are responding to you mm. um, in the audience. So I didn't have any show mum, which was great, actually. <laughs> I was my show mum. And yeah, then I, I started work pretty, I went to drama, so I went to uni, I tried to go to uni and I got essays back saying you act much better than you write. Ooh, tough love. And then the next one was, is English your second language? No, you're joking. <laughs> well, sort of it is, you know, my language is of the heart. Yeah. So, I can't believe they gave that as feedback though. How extraordinary. Pretty wow. much. But rather than seeing that as a negative, I saw that as a sign, mm. a sign to, you know, move away from the intellectual side of things and keep where I felt most comfortable, which was mm. how does it feel? What, is it, what does it mean to someone else? So the only reason I act is to impact other people, not from me and my, who I am, but through the stories of the characters I play. Because I think there has to be a place in this world where people can quietly reflect or try to imagine or absorb something that happened to them a while ago or they're right in it mm. and, and not be about outcomes and not be quantifiable and to visit them in their dreams or their quiet times. Or So, yeah, I feel I'd like to be a resource. Do you, I love that way of framing it. And, and Larry Moss's work, who I'm a big fan of, made me realise that whole side of, of acting when I went and audited his work a couple of years ago. But do you remember the first time you, you impacted an audience like that? Can you, can you take yourself there? Yeah, absolutely. I was playing Helena in A Midsummer Night's Dream and I, it was a Bell Shakespeare and we did a national tour. I think I did 140 performances or something. Wow. And even on the 120th performance, I have to say with Shakespeare, it is always a pleasure. Mm. And it's like singing this amazing song. And I remember the la in the last performance sending it off and feeling it go but to live forever, to continue, I felt it. Whereas some plays you do, you know, they're just going to stop there. There's no pass. She has this fabulous um, monologue, and I still remember it, how happy some or other some can be through Athens. I am thought as fair as she, but what of that? Demetrius thinks not so. And I can't believe I can still remember it because it's like <laughs> 26 years ago or something. That's incredible. Um, and I would get these massive laughs and the pleasure that Helena gave these people, the pleasure I had being inside of this, and these words I don't agree with, but it's how she's described geeky, unformed, sort of a little bit, uh, you know, she, she gets down on her hands and knees and says, treat me as you would treat your dog. Mm. So these days quite controversial, but there's a way to do it where it's not too debasing, you know. When you're in love, you're in love. Um, <laughs> and that was really the first time where night after night just get these massive laughs and I could see the joy that was being spread. And some nights I didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I was quite resentful because you get exhausted eight shows a week, you know, matinee Wednesday, turn around one hour back on. One of our cast members had a heart attack on opening night in Melbourne. Frank Ritten, and he continued. The paramedics came and they said, you've got to stop. He said, I can't stop. It's, you know, it's only that, interval. That brings, a, a, a sh the show must go on to a whole new level of meaning. That's extraordinary. I, I mean, I've been vomiting in the wings, pregnant with my first child, and literally, like, wiping the vomit from my mouth and going back on stage, I tangoed for 20 minutes in my underwear with my daughter kicking me um, from the inside. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what am I doing? I just want to, you know, we didn't have Netflix then, but I, I just want to cuddle <laughs> up with a hot water bottle and I don't get a foot messer. So, you know, you do, you really, um, you put the audience first. And I like that. So, yeah, that was my first experience. 
How, how do you do that though? Because I, I mean, the performance demands of that sort of schedule are immense. And I love going to the theatre in particular, but I often come away and think the, the emotional exert, they have left everything out there. They've been such a vessel for the audience and, and just put it all on the line. How do they do that night after night? How do you recover? What have you learned from a kind of habit or, or readiness standpoint for how you get yourself in that sort of state? As I've gotten older, it's changed. When I was younger, it was a, uh, I would prepare. I would prepare physically and mentally. And as I've gotten older, I'm not as good as that, at that. And I recently did a play, The Doll's House Part Two, written by Lucas Hanath, really fantastic American playwright. And I was on stage for an hour and 20, nonstop, didn't mm. leave, uh, talking the whole time. And playing Nora. And on top of that, I now have uh, people know me and they come for different reasons. So they might have seen my television work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's an added pressure to that. You can't just walk in there. Plus Nora coming back after 15 years after Doll's House. So there was a lot of, lot of, lot of pressures. And the, and the, the door I had to walk through got heavier and heavier and heavier to open at the beginning of the night. But it's a bit like a long haul flight. You just got to do it. And inside of that will be moments of greatness and discovery. So what I try to do is I empty myself of everything, especially expectation. Is that through and meditation? I, How do you actually like tangibly do that? Sounds easier than done. Switch, um, when I'm preparing. So I put on my own makeup and I make promises to myself across the mirror I will take care of you. I will reward you afterwards. It's a very nice bottle of Shiraz for one glass <laughs> for you. Um, so, you know, you bargain. Um, and then I think of the 860 people who left work, grabbed something to eat, jumped on a tram, bought a ticket from America, some of them, came over from Perth or wherever, whatever. And I go, for them, now you need to concentrate and empty yourself and then I would I just fill up with the character and then I find I go into the ideas and I re-examine the ideas so I feel yeah that's a privilege for me and some nights my heart is full and some nights I'm broken at the end but I think if it doesn't cost I don't know you should be doing it it's not really it's not really that space that space needs to cost I like that. Is that, uh, it made me think when you were talking that just at the end there around, uh, and I imagine this increases as your career increases and the notoriety that you've received for the, the wonderful work that you've done has accordingly. You would have choice now over the roles that you, you take to, to a certain extent. How do you choose what you say yes to in that regard? I have to not know how to do it. So when I read it, I have to go... <sighs> No. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the opposite of what most people would say. I love that. Explain why. Why is that? Well, if I know, then I know it's just going to be too easy. I'm going to go into my bag of tricks and I'm going to just cruise along and go, woohoo, how fun is this? How easy is this? And I'm not here for that. And so, yeah, first I have to be hit with you shouldn't do this uh, because you don't know how to. And then it's all about the team for me. Who is, who is it? Who will you be working with? Who will you be negotiating with? Because acting is all about collaboration. I don't do it for me. I work here between us. So it doesn't matter what I think and feel. It matters how it lands on you. And then how what you re- return back to me tells me where I take it. So if that person opposite me isn't isn't wanting to play like I do, which is pretty hard and pretty fast and and pretty relentlessly only about the work, then I know it's probably not worth my time. Mm. So I often say at the beginning of a process or rehearsals, uh, well, I say a few things now because I'm allowed to. (laughs) I say, please, can we make this a phone-free zone? Love that, down the tech. Because if you're building a world from your imaginations, by looking up out of that world and seeing a whole lot of people like they're on a bus or a train. And I get it for that. I think it's great. You know, it stops you from feeling alone or um, like you're wasting your time. 
But in that room, the whole room has to be spinning up that, that universe. So I say, I get people need to take calls and be on their phones, but if it's, if it, it's just outside. So, so then we separate the creative imaginative world from the hard reality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it extends people's concentrations as mm-hmm. well. We work rehearse from nine to five or 10 to six, and we stop for one hour for lunch. So it's just, it's, it's you're constantly working, reworking. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that breaks that uh, can take out a whole afternoon and there's just not enough time. We don't have the time or the money to develop this stuff for very long. So, um, and the other thing I ask is that it's always about the work. Mm. And, um, you know, this comes into a lot of the stuff that we're hearing about that's happened because, of course, we put our hearts and bodies on the line as actors. So sometimes that can get a little bit muddy. Mm. Um, but I feel if we're in the work zone always and no one's talking about but what you do and who you are, but rather who are we as characters and creators um, that that really helps. So I, I say it's always about the work for me. And if you feel that I'm invading on your personality uh, personally, just talk to me and I'll explain to you why, why I'm not meaning it like that. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I learned by sitting in the room up the back watching and I called myself an apprentice and I still feel that way, Holly. Like we learn... Every day, if we're not learning, what are we doing it what for? What are we doing? Couldn't agree more. That's the other thing. I want to learn from everyone else. And as sometimes now these days I'm the lead, I don't get to, I don't get to go away. So I say to people, I love it when you're here. You don't have to learn from me, but I love it when you're here because <laughs> it helps me feel, you know, like we're a team. So... Maybe that answers your question. I'm not sure. No, it does. 100%. I, I wanted to ask you about like how, how you feel with confidence and vulnerability into play for you. Because one of the things that struck me when you were talking earlier was this notion that in part why, why you started acting was through this quote you said to, to sort of run away from yourself. And then all these messages that the world gave you um, were don't do it, don't do it. And, and it is such a vulnerable thing to stand on a stage to audition and to face the rejection that comes with the industry too, of sort of putting yourself out there on the line like that. Was there always this innate confidence in you that I can do this? Or, or is that something that's cultivated on time? Like how do those two things coexist? Because I feel like we're having a lot of conversations about vulnerability now. At the same time, we're also talking to a generation of women about how they've got to be more confident. How, what have you learned about those two forces? For me, it was, I never, I never even thought about it. I turned up and I auditioned because I understood that you had to win the role. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fine by me. And I looked at auditions as, an, as a chance to practice my craft. Yep. And there were some, I, wa- I was on hold for Eowyn in Lord of the Rings. For, wow. I met Peter Jackson. I met with his wife. I did a couple of callbacks and it was, I was put on hold. And that I vomited before that audition. I remember in the shower, I was so in love with that character and I could care less about the Lord of the Rings, but I, she was this warrior and I had a warrior in me that I had never got to play with. So, and someone had recognized it could be positive. That, that was the one role that took me about two years to get over that I didn't play. Um, So that being said, Every other audition, I went knowing it might not be mine. I think then when I started, when I got the television shows that I've done for seven years, back to back, six seasons of Place to Call Home, three seasons of Janet King, plus the Crownies before it, and Jack Irish, which is three telly movies and two series, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. I stopped auditioning because I didn't have any time. So I've just recently gone back to auditioning. How is it? And it's really hard now for me because there's sub 700 hours of work you can look at. Yeah, use my body, use the audition. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me do this. Ah! So I have a different relationship now to to that. But the way I see it, Holly, the way I would like to talk to your, you know, anyone listening here, for me it's about advocating for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've changed what it is. I'm not trying to win the role. 
I'm advocating for myself. And it's something I've had to learn because I was not taught that as a young woman. It was not something we were supposed to do. So now I, I use that. I say, okay, Mark, now's the time to uh, turn up and show you what you got. And what have you learned about advocating well for yourself? Any, any tips for those listening? I think it's important never to boast. Um, boastfulness is not attractive. And I mean that for a man or a woman. So what I do is I talk about the stories that I'm working on and the stories that I want to work on and the people that I'm working with. And I advocate for other women within those projects because what I'm saying is I'm bringing a whole lot of people with me. Mm. And I'm so we're doing a play down here in Hobart. We've started a theatre company. So we have this beautiful play. It's about domestic violence. We've got three women on stage. But I'm doing as well a panel on domestic violence that Annabelle Crabb has agreed to come and host. I've got ABC streaming it live on Facebook for the country. Mm-hmm. I've got a portrait artist, Amanda Davies, who's a local down here, who's read the play and is going to do a response um, through her painting work. Beautiful. And that will be in the foyer. And I will have helplines all over the program and to say, if you want to stay behind and talk to us, we're available. So when I advocate, I, I advocate for the, you know, I say, we need to talk more about domestic violence. And so I'm putting my energy behind that or mm. being a goodwill ambassador for UNHCR. So I try to show people what I'm doing instead of talking about myself, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I, I've admired about you since we met is the way that you use the platform that you've got to raise awareness of significant issues. And, and particularly you do a lot of work with, say, the children and UNHCR. Why is it that the children and refugees in particular are causes that are really close to your heart? Well, I think women and children are the most vulnerable in society. And I think, uh, you know, rape being a weapon of war mm. has always struck me as being something quite toxic. And from those rapes, a lot of children are born. Um, I was re- uh, UNHCR, Australia for UNHCR reached out to me many, many years ago. And I remember Channel 7, you know, we were doing the publicity machine for a place to call home. I'd never come across it. And I was doing these racehorsing things and this and that. They were asking me to doing, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then I realised I don't actually enjoy any of this stuff. Mm. So I said to them, can I not use my time to, yeah, highlight certain things. Uh, So I worked with Cancer Australia for a long time, you know, because I had a personal story I was willing to share. Um, Then then that got tired for me. I got tired of going through that trauma again and again and again. I felt like I'd made the impact I could. So then I started thinking, what else? Um, I'd been out to Villawood as a young woman um, with Linda Javen, who's an amazing writer, advocate for refugees. And so we went out there a couple of times and I directed a play that she had written about refugees um, here in Australia. So then I thought, well, what about internationally? So then I did a couple of missions to Jordan and Lebanon. And as soon as I arrived and saw what was happening 20 minutes from the Syrian border in Zatri, I was like, right, okay, I have to talk about this. So I think as well, I, when I played the Holocaust survivor in A Place to Call Home, I watched a lot of Shoah. And in Shoah, it's the Holocaust survivors talking about their experiences and bearing witness to the horror and to their loss. But none of them cried. (laughs) They had such poise. I mean, I get emotional just talking about Mm -hmm. it because their dignity and their willingness to, to bear witness. And I thought, I have to absorb these stories and bring them back and be, you know, brave. I'm not I have to work on my courage and it's not me that's sitting there. So, so those things just um, built in me and I will do it as long as I can. And I would do more if I could, but I have a very young family and um, I did recently take them. I asked them where was safe. So we took them to Uganda. And how old are your girls again? Nine and 12. Nine and 12. And, and uh, I was going to ask you to begin with, I mean, what's, What's the story that you wish more of humanity knew about what was going on and, and the state of refugees? And, and what was it like seeing that through your daughter's eyes? Yeah, so Jordan uh, and Lebanon was more, um, what's the right word, devastating in the sense that there was this um, vibration of terror and um, PTSD all through all through everyone. Um, you could hear stuff happening over the border. We knew that there was an ISIS camp of 50,000 because they used drones. We knew they were sitting there. 
and they just closed the border because there'd been a, a terrorist attack on the military on the Jordan side. So they've closed that. So not taking any more. Thankfully, my husband came along and uh, that was a very difficult mission for both of us. Equally, Lebanon out on the outer skirts because there's only urban refugees there and they are really struggling. Yeah. I came back from that and, and was physically and mentally impacted. Um, the Ugandan trip was the opposite. It was, uh, we went to Entebbe and drove four hours into this settlement because they're welcome there. Mm. They get given land, they can go to school, they can work. You know, it's very, they have medical, they can go to the hospitals and they can trade and they're farmers. So when they arrive, they get wood and it's not, I mean, we're talking below poverty level plastic sheeting and they put up a house in two days and they plant the seeds that they're given and they're growing a garden and, and people come around them. Um, and so the kids saw kids playing and we could hear laughter and there was a sense of hope. And I think as well in Africa, sadly, there's, they're used to moving. They're used to borders shifting and things happening and people coming in kind of taking it all. And within four or five years, they, or maybe less, they can go back. With Syria and Jordan, you know, they know they can't go back and now it's eight years, nine years, and they've been forgotten. One of the most beautiful things someone said to me, Holly, was by turning up, you keep them safe. Because I said, what, mm. what can I do? I said, really? Oh, yes, because you bring cameras. And the governments recognise that. And so that'll buy another six months. Not to say these governments are not taking care of these people. They've done an extraordinary job. But... It just buys time, more time. So I thought, oh, okay, great. Yeah. So let me know when to come back. Um, but you must only go if it's helpful. And um, yeah. I think it, it helps me when I'm raising money. Just And it is this word, isn't it? Authenticity. Lived that, experience of being there and being able to share authentic stories of what you've witnessed in the people's lives that you've borne witness to. Yes, and that is my job in my work and, and my job in my life. Mm. I think we all need to be as authentic as we can and if, if that isn't enough for people, then you probably don't want to be working with those people. Completely. Um, and how did your daughters find it? So, yes, sorry, through their eyes, um, they understood that there was hope and possibility and they understood that they had more and they wanted to help. And in fact, my nine-year-old came back and did a fundraiser at her school um, to send soccer balls over because the kids had said, we need, we need balls, man. <laughs> and now for me, it just means it's in their psyche and in their life. And I, I believe they will always understand that. And mm. I will continue to. We went with Save the Children to some remote Indigenous communities in Australia and equally, they, they're playing with all the kids and, and they're, they're not noticing any difference. And there was some, some deeply um, sad situations in those places that they didn't even register uh, in the sense of going, oh, what's happening? No, not at all. They're just like, when can we go back? And beautiful Maddie and how do we find her? And so it's always a delight and a real privilege um, to be allowed to take them into these places, and but I'm pretty proud of them. They don't, they don't have any um, any sense of difference. And I think as the world becomes one, we can't. I mean, I just read Sapiens. Oh yeah, uh, great read. And it really is. And it just says we've made it all up. We're all in it together. <laughs> Let's start behaving that way. So um, you know, that's my mantra. I love it. You mentioned before. You know, it's an interesting time to be a female in the industry uh, and that there's a muddying of the waters that's been going on in, a, in um, obviously we've seen over the last couple of years, Time's Up and Me Too and all of that. For you, was that finally a conversation being given the, the, the airtime that it had so long deserved? Was that your experience in the industry? Like finally we've cracked this open and we're starting to challenge what has been going on and some of the really unhealthy subcultures that exist within this world or I guess the second part of that question that I really want to ask is do you feel it's made a difference? Of course I feel there's no going back and there's no possible way that it can which is so beautiful for my daughters yeah and they have words around these things they understand about what they deserve and what is rightfully theirs 
dignity is back on the cards, which is something that I'm a huge fan of. Um, your own dignity, your own power. I think in my industry, it's, it's muddy. There, you have to be able to, to go to a place um, to authentically uh, find uh, that. It's a very vulnerable space. Um, so for me, an intimacy consultant is problematic um, only because I need to be able to work it out with the other person. But you're saying these are people that at the theatre companies, for example, and, and film sets are now hiring to navigate how the two characters can appropriately respect boundaries while still performing a scene. Is that what they are? Yeah, that's right. And, and for me, a director should be doing that. If, yeah. And obviously they haven't been in other circumstances. So for that reason, it's fantastic they're just sitting outside that door. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that they stay out there until they're invited in which I think is absolutely what, what is going to happen. But very much for me and my body, I need to work it out first. Then if that doesn't work for me, then we can all come in and have a go. <laughs> but I need to start with me. It's how I've always done it. And I think uh, that's how I'll be continuing to run my space. Mm-hmm. And I am totally open and respectful of anyone who wants to do it another way. But we need to keep empowering ourselves and knowing that we have it within us to do that because as I learnt it through getting older, I was clearer and clearer. If I have someone else telling me how to do it, do I properly properly absorb that and know how to present that? So I'm just, for me, I'd love my daughters to have the awkward first kiss uh, and be able to say no gently in a gentle situation then have it go from zero to a hundred because there's been no practice or, you know, so I'm just trying to, um, I hope that the boys continue to feel courageous enough to gently, you know, flirt or whatever and, and not being told, you know, you stay away completely because we've got to find the balance and be yeah. empowered. It's crazy, isn't it? It's always the, the, the worst few that, that ruin it for everyone. Yep. So I'm, I'm so sad about that and I'm so sorry for anyone that had to go through it. I had moments, but I dealt with it. But not everyone can. Mm. And that's what it's there for. Um, but it was certainly how I grew up. And I'm learning about it, Holly. I'm learning about my past from a different angle. And, yeah, you, it makes me sad and a little bit angry and then I go, but I, I'm, I'm so strong now mm-hmm. and in those moments uh, I fought for myself. But, again, I say no, not everyone can do that. So, and so you mean that in terms of almost looking at things now where you go, yeah, that really wasn't okay, that that was just part of how things were done. And totally. it was a, a given that I accepted that because that was what I was told was normal and the way things were. And now looking at that with 2019 eyes, you go, oh, geez. And I think that was one of the interesting things for me, reading a few of the accounts of, of um, Penelope Cruz's uh, op-ed in particular, I think it was, where you look at people that in theory had the most agency probably of, of some of the women in that list and yet were so extraordinarily um, boxed out from a power standpoint and, and just mm-hmm. rushed. And you look at it and go, you know, it's... It's so challenging to advocate, to use your, your language before, for yourself in those circumstances so often. You know, it's, it, these are systemic challenges where um, I'm so grateful to hear that, that you've been able to navigate the challenging situations you found yourself in, but we've certainly got this whole need for the system to lift and improve at large. Yeah, I think really there is no way back. I, you know, I know in rehearsal rooms it's, it's a long induction now. Yeah, right. And and that has two impacts. I was recently working with an 18-year-old girl and after the three-hour induction, she was sort of white and a bit shaky and I, we went outside for some fresh air and I said, are you okay? And she said, I, I feel like I've, I've already done something wrong. So I think we have to be really careful yeah. about bringing a problem into a room when there is no problem Yep. and saying, you know, we'll take care of you, uh, but firstly, you need to all take care of each other uh, before you go out to this complaint area or this person or this person that you don't know and never meet until you have a problem. 
So my feedback to that was very much, uh, I think let's just all calm it down and make it feel more normal that, that you will be supported. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of, you will be supported. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to your point, right, it's acknowledging the nuance and the complexity and the, and, and the difficulty of what we're talking about here. Uh, like it is. That's right. Let's not get stuck in a false binary of there is wrong and right. There is, there is so you know, particularly when we're talking about the expression of emotions and conveying relationships authentically and everything you need to do in your vocation. It is so much trickier than that. And we're, we're not doing it justice to paint it simply. Not really. And I think when you are the leader, elder in the room, like the most experienced, let's say, in this play, well, actually not necessarily, but, but the main role. So then you have a sort of leadership role to make sure everyone feels comfortable and, and when you're working with them, everyone gets to create in the way that they want to create. I suddenly felt like I didn't, that was slightly taken away from me, that I wouldn't be allowed to, to lead the vibe in the room. And, and that was how I grew up. Mm. Peter Carroll and John Gayden and Pamela Rabe and, you know, leading the room in a really hardworking, respectful way and so we all did too. And that's how I learned. And so I was going, but hang on, I want to lead and show them that there's nothing to be afraid of and they're going to have a really great time. And, you know, um, so we've, we, I'm happy to take responsibility for that stuff, I guess. And mm -hmm. so I say there is a responsibility as you grow older to lead by example. And so we mustn't let these protocols stop us from being the best we can be and be the leaders and mentors that we need to be. So you don't want mm -hmm. these kids kind of, and I say that with respect, children. I'm not allowed to call them kids. My kids, <laughs> my kids say, mum, they're goats, baby goats. I'm like, oh, a little bit goatish. Um, so I, I still want to be a mentor. So I do uh, say to the younger performers, if you want to contact me, here's my number. If I meet them at a reading or a workshop or in a play or on the TV set and they're there for 20 minutes, I say, call me. If you've got any questions, if something happens and you're not quite sure about it, call me because I've be probably been through it mm. and I'll be able to help. And if you then feel like you need to take that somewhere else, I'm, I'll help you get there. So I think we also need to remember to put our hand up. That's all I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, they can work through the experienced into their own experience. So if I were you in a new workplace, just find someone you really trust who's older than you are and has done the things you want to do, connect with them personally and say, mm -hmm. I know I've got an HR person, but I really <laughs> like you. And would you mind if I, you know, could call you or turn up in your office or whatever? We don't have offices, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so I've often picked up the phone to younger performers and had a chat. I think that's really helpful. And you've mentioned mentors a couple of times. Who's been the most significant mentor in, in your life and the most significant lesson you feel they've taught you? There's so many, Holly, um, but one that the readers would identify with is Kate Blanchett. She's one of my dearest, dearest friends and she... I did a War of the Roses with her. It was an eight-hour theatre show and we sat in a dressing room together four hours a night. We performed and on Wednesdays and Saturdays we did the whole eight. Wow. So there was a lot of talking time and since then we've never let each other go. And what's so helpful is she's done everything um, that you can do in this industry and more and she is a decent, down-to-earth, gorgeous, honest person Mm. And so when, when things get a bit complicated for me in the workplace, I give her a buzz and I say, what do you think of this? And she says, oh, yeah, I've had that. So, you know, try this or that. And if that doesn't work, then, yeah, you've got to bring some people in and whatever. Or I'll say to her, I've got this idea. You know, I was thinking I want to start my own production company and be a producer. And she's like, yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. Uh, and, uh, and then she says to me, if you need me to open a door, let me know. And if I can, I will. So advocating for each other. I love um, that so much. Is a beautiful thing. So she, she is really a mentor. And I watched, I used to go and see her when she did theatre here in Australia because they ran the Sydney Theatre Company. For those who don't know, I would go and see her play twice, once at the beginning and once sort of middle end-ish. And just watch her work, her live work 
is so full of joy and clowning. And for someone who is known as a dramatic actress, she's one of the funniest people I have ever seen on stage. And her contact with the audience, having been on stage with her mm. and seeing the audience like, when she first comes on, they can't breathe. And by the end, <laughs> so true. They're her best friend. She's yeah. their best friend. So it's that transference of aura to, um, to being fabric of, of their lives. Um, so for that, I am eternally grateful. And because I know how authentic she is as well, I think you can be both. You cannot manipulate an audience. And so that is something, a mantra I say to myself, do not manipulate an audience. They're smarter than you think. They know more than you know. So you have to come in totally authentic. And if they like what they're getting, if it helps and receives into them, then great. So that she's been a massive uh, help. And I just did a TV series with her that she produced um, here in Australia called Stateless. And it's about refugees in this country. And it took her seven years to get it up because wow. no one wanted to talk about it. But she kept on going. And it's um, coming out next year. And I actually got to work with her on screen. So I'd worked with her on the stage. And awesome. I had the best fun. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to watch that. Bring on 2020. I was laughing when the cameras were rolling. So, yeah, right. you know, it should be that as well. There should be joy. Yeah. And I think the audience picks up on that too. You know, the, the, whether it, even if it's sitting beneath serious content, that genuine chemistry that exists between two people um, playing roles, I think always has a way of, you know, creeping, like you just, it pervades things. You just feel it. You experience it. Yeah. And I think it would be the same for any kind of business. So when I do pitches now, I'm working with Fremantle developing projects. And when we do the pitches, we like each other so much. I really feel the room just fill up with joy and we say, hey, this is something we want to play on. You want to come? And that's, to me, the best way to collaborate. It's awesome. Can I ask, the move into production, what, what motivated that? Was that always, had this been a long-standing passion that you were just waiting for the right moment to move into or a, a, a turn you'd not necessarily predicted early in your career? Yes, and look, I'm still willing to let it go. I keep on going, yeah, this doesn't work. We're just like, you know, yeah, take it off the whatever. Um, yeah, I was doing it with Janet King, which is an ABC show I did um, for three years and I was the associate producer on it and which meant I was in all in all the rooms making all the decisions and I realized well not all of them we were collaborating and I got to put my five cents in but I you know I was respectfully listened to and I thought well this is really helpful when you come in on the ground level with television particularly and you develop up a series and you're the lead mm. if you're there from the very beginning you start dreaming it at least a year and a half before you start shooting it, which means by the time you walk on as that person, you have been that person for so long, it's no longer a question. It's a what, not a whether, and a how, not a why, because you have all the answers. Mm. So coming in on the ground just became for me a necessity. So when all my shows wrapped up at once... <laughs> I thought, and I was approached by Fremantle, uh, I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. And it's been such an amazing experience. I have so much respect for producers now. Mm. Not that I didn't before, I just didn't know what they did. Now <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> about budgets yeah. and about cutting costs and putting the money on the screen. Um, and our industry, Holly, is not as healthy as the American industry. We oh, are struggling because we don't have that many eyeballs on the screen. And I just recently went to Canberra to advocate for local content rules across the SVODs because if we don't, mm -hmm. our industry will disappear because they don't need to make it here. But if they do, and I can tell you, we punch, I hate this saying, punch above our weight, but we... We, we make world-class productions and we do it for a lot less. I would like to have their budgets, but we oh, do not. So, um, you know, we're one-tenth, and I'm not exaggerating, per app, one-tenth of an American budget is an Australian television budget. Wow. So what you're seeing on screen is against all odds. Um, so I also feel with my voice I can advocate for that and the future of Australian stories 
I've spent a bit of time in America. They love our stories. They yeah, they do. Yeah. And so we can't be making stories for them because the ones that we make that aren't for them, they love more than the ones we make to try and get into their market. So I'm constantly reminding people of that and trying to say, um, you know, keep it local, keep it Australian. Um, but we'll see. I'll let you ask, is streaming going to be a net positive or a, a, an, a, an increasing threat for the Australian industry? With content rules, it will be a positive. With okay. no legislation around it. I mean, look, Netflix made $700 million from Australia alone and 1.2% of that was Australian content. Right. Yeah. Do the math, eh? Yeah. So it's just about saying you invest back 10% of that. Um, Can you imagine how that would change the industry? Wow. That's bigger than anything we've ever even thought about. So, and, and it only benefits them because they're, you know, as Disney separates off HBO, they're, they're creating their own worlds. Hopefully these places are, you know, like I've been talking to Acorn TV that has Place to Call Home and yeah. Janet King on it and Jack Irish, actually. So um, that I go over there and they're like, you're, you're world famous. Yeah, like, well, like, they love you. <laughs> love you but thank you. And, oh, my God, we think you're amazing. And it's so beautiful. And they have a million subscribers yeah. and they do do original content. So I've been like emailing them, hey, how about this for an idea? And wouldn't you love to make this your original content? So it's just about understanding that, uh, you know, making relationships. The television yeah. industry is, is about relationships. And well, it's funny because it just occurred to me when you were talking about pitching. I mean, it's storytelling in another form, isn't it? And you've said you've sort of, you know, your, your life is the art of storytelling, the work that you do with UNHCR, the work that you do on, on stage or in front of a camera, and now the, the work that you're doing behind, you know, producing and bringing stories to life. What for you is at the heart of a great story? That's changed, you know, since I, um, since I started. Uh, you know, recently I was looking back at some reviews and people were very confused by my performances on stage and it was because I was shouting at them. I was trying to present people that were unsympathetic and pushing boundaries and, and creating chaos. And now I'm about relatability. Mm. I want people to be able to absorb and understand my characters and the stories that I'm in and that they can put their own lives inside of that. And the daring that comes is when you dare to go into those very vulnerable places. Whereas before, it, I was showing them how I was feeling and now I want to feel and and see if that works for people. It's interesting. You stop shouting as much when you get older, I guess. <laughs> um, so for me, the heart of the story has to be a little bit of relatability. And that can be that you don't even know you relate to them. My favourite novels are the ones where there's a female character and she takes me into a part of myself I don't dare look at. But I think that's different for everyone. So I don't think I can say what should be in the centre of a story, but rather I'm trying to create stories of women who aren't in relation to men. I know that and who live outside of moral rules and codes because I'm interested in women pushing those boundaries as much as men have and are allowed to in story. Mm -hmm. If we do it, we're hysterical. If they do it, they're groundbreaking. <laughs> it's about right, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, I think as well, I think people are really interested in family dynamics and I'm really interested in mothers. Uh, uh, that seems like such a loaded statement. The face that you just pulled saying that, please unpack that for me. <laughs> when you're sitting around a table and people start talking about their mums and their relationship with their mums yep. and I go, oh, wow. <laughs> and that makes sense. <laughs> as a mother, it's one of the hardest balances. I mean, I accidentally um, was putting sun cream on my daughter this morning and she pulled away like, don't you dare do that and smashed her head on the cupboard oh, and started falling. And I was like, a bad mum moment. Oh my God, I just failed in so many ways. So um, anyway, that's a bit of a fun. But uh, yeah, story. Yeah, I think it's as easy as that. I like it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's so easy. Um, yeah. I'm so conscious of your time. And, and there's a, a final question I'd love to ask you. It's one we like to ask all of our guests. And 
and that is kind of taking people out of um, this state of, of inspiration. They no doubt will have taken so much from what it is that you've shared and helping them think through how they can translate that into um, action. Because um, so the notion and the heartbeat, I guess, this, this podcast runs to is helping people to be the change they want to see in, in their own life and in their community. If you could leave our listeners with a call to action today, something you'd love to encourage them to go and do after hearing what you've shared, what would you like to call them into, into doing? I think it's important to stop saying sorry. You know, women tend to go, sorry, sorry, could I just, I just thought, sorry, if I, so I would ban that from your lexicon um, because that to me is something that sort of shows you're not totally in your centre and that's something I've tried to stop doing. And I think listening is really something I've worked on as well. So it's two things. I think to be present you have to listen so it's not about being in it's not always about you (laughs) and and the other thing I would say is to really stay with the people who make you feel good because they are your community they are your and with them go to meet the people who don't make you feel good so you understand who they are in the world as well because I think we can only learn from the other we can't always be around ourselves and go yeah don't you think yeah I think that too yeah we've got to meet the people who scare us and who have a different worldview and spend time with them. And that way you can implement better change, I think, because you know how they're thinking and feeling. I love that, though, that notion of start with the tribe who get you and love you and then do that together. Because I think for a lot of people that's such an intimidating prospect and and the notion of, of one amongst many that are different is sort of beyond what most people can comprehend doing. That's a really a really powerful frame for how people could actually take that idea forward because I think you're right. We don't achieve anything by sitting in echo chambers and um, reminding ourselves how great we are. (laughs) You know, we've got a a world that requires us, you know, how great we think we are. Uh, Thinking of numerous Donald Trump tweets in my head as I I say that. Um, So I I think that's such sound advice for a way to move forward and try and find new common ground. And I can't thank you enough for... I've just found this conversation fascinating. I mean, so many dimensions to what we've talked about, you know, to the the, the art and the performance craft and, and the discipline and habits required to cultivate it to the level and uh, that, that you've been able to, the incredible passion you've got for the social work that you do and shining a light on stories that we still don't, I think, fully appreciate, let alone um, know how to appropriately respond to as it, uh, humanity faces just refugee challenge beyond comprehension really in so many regards. And, yeah. and then I think that that piece around how we do a better job of advocating for ourselves is something that will resonate really deeply with so many of our listeners. So thank you for being so open, so candid um, and just so wonderful. I appreciate you so much. And I'm looking forward to watching you light up our TV screens again in 2020. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.